You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you for joining us each and every week, as you guys always do. Happy holidays to everybody. Certainly want to wish everybody the best this time of year. Before we get started with this week's episode, reminder to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hazard Ground or at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with what's going on with the show, upcoming guests, things of that nature. Tell your friends to follow us as well. Want to keep growing this Hazard Ground community. Also want to remind you of our newest sponsor. So excited to have these guys back. Combat Flip-Flops. Now, if you go back to our earlier Hazard Ground episodes, we had the founders of Combat Flip-Flops, Matt Griffin and Donald Lee, on episode 20. These two former Army Rangers put together this idea to bring peace to war-torn areas of the world, and they did it through business. Basically, what the first part of this invention was, was they took the boot sole of one of the boots that we wear and made it into a flip-flop. So it's an awesome idea. And now they've grown this company. They were on Shark Tank. It's huge. They've grown this company into something that is really impacting war-torn countries throughout the world. For example, you buy a pair of combat flip-flops, that'll put an Afghan girl through school. That's the kind of impact you'll be having. These guys are great. They love what they do. They stand behind all their work. And we at the Hazard Ground stand behind them as well. So here's what you do. Go to their website, combatflipflops.com, and enter the code HAZARD1. That's HAZARD, the number one, at checkout, and you'll get 15% off every order. You don't even have to go to our sponsors page at hazardground.com. Of course, we always love you to go to hazardground.com and check out the sponsors page. But if you go to Combat Flip Flops and enter the code HAZARD1, you'll get 15% off your entire order. It's a great way to do some holiday shopping and buy some loved ones some great gifts this time of year. Speaking of holiday shopping, also want to remind you of our continual ongoing partnership with Amazon. This you have to go to our website for hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. Do all your Amazon holiday shopping or any shopping you need to do for that matter. Right there on amazon.com. Whatever you spend, we get a portion of that back from Amazon and we donate that directly to some of the great charities you've heard here on the Hazard Ground. So you can do your holiday shopping and help out some great veterans organizations and veterans all across the country just by doing your Christmas shopping on hazardground.com and then clicking on the Amazon banner. As always, thank you guys for being part of the Hazard Ground community and we love the fact that you guys are with us each and every week. Now, onto this week's episode. This week's guest is a retired staff sergeant from the United States Marine Corps for deployments overseas to to Iraq and Afghanistan, and now he has recently been named to the Committee for Shootout for Soldiers, a charity event, a 24-hour lacrosse game that goes on benefiting all of our military. He is Dave Burton here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Dave, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So look, you know, I mean, it's funny because there is, there's a lot of different things that, that people accomplished throughout their military careers. And while, you know, we, we were talking prior to, to starting recording that you were worried that you didn't have much to say or it wasn't a big deal, but, you know, everybody's story is unique. And the fact that you did four deployments in five years in and of itself is very tough. And let's go back to the beginning, though, and tell us why you joined the Marine Corps and how you got in. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, first, just wanted to say uh, thank you for what you're doing and, and everything you do for veterans and their families. And a happy Veterans Day uh, to you. Same to you, brother. Thank um, you. Thank you. Um, well, uh, just kind of growing up, I always kind of admired the military. Um, I think you and I are kind of around the same age and, uh, I grew up with Top Gun on the TV and that was all I wanted to be was an F-14 pilot, like (laughs) from age nine until, you know, um, and I started, you know, reading a lot of books and 
just always really admired Marines. Um, kind of looked up to him from when I was a kid. Um, and then I got through high school and I just kind of let myself get talked out of joining. I didn't, didn't do it. And, uh, I was one of those, as we call them, almost joined guys. <laughs> um, so, you know, what, what about my life? I was in the restaurant business for a long time. Um, kind of a background, kind of pretty unremarkable childhood. Um, not great, not bad. Uh, my parents, uh, broke up when I was about three or four. Um, they're great people. They still get along great. Um, my mom remarried. My stepdad, um, was in the Baltimore city fire fire department for 35 years. Um, and I remember just as a kid, a lot, one of my, a lot of my greatest memories are going down the beach to ocean city, Maryland. And we used to go to the, uh, the firefighters conventions and just to see all the firefighters from the whole East coast, you know, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York. And, you know, fast forward to 2001 and I'm, you know, 24 year old bartender living in Annapolis, Maryland and nine 11 happens. And I hadn't even thought about joining the military in years. And, um, that was just such a, I mean, we could spend a whole six hours just talking about that day. Um, I just remember being hung over on the couch because it's a Tuesday morning and I'm a bartender. So that's my Saturday. Um, and the thing that hits me, and I feel like everybody really reacted to that day differently. Like it was obviously one of the worst days in history. Um, but everybody takes their own little thing individually from it. And mine was the amount of firefighters that were lost. I think it was 343. That's correct. Yeah. Plus, 343. Yeah. Plus police officers, EMS, Port Authority, like all the first responders really. Um, and I just, in my head, I was like, well, that's, that's it. Like, I don't, I don't need to be bartending right now. Like there's, there's more important things I could be doing. And I went into the, the recruiting office the next day. I went, I went in there nine twelve, and, and I remember getting down there and, and I figured there'd be a line along around the block, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, I walked in, there's nobody there. I'm like, I walked up to the stairs and I'm like, where is everybody? He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, how many people have joined today? And he's like, well, nobody yet. And I'm like, I, I just, it's just unfathomable. I'm like, really? Nobody. Okay. Well, um, I'll just sign here then, <laughs> you know? Um, so that was kind of what got me behind it. You know, I mean, I always, I had a great family life. We were never rich, never poor. I have two wonderful sisters, uh, a wonderful brother, mom, dad, stepmom, stepdad, like everything. I got no complaints, but I also had nothing tying me down as far as girlfriend, wife. And I'm like, well, let's, not to romanticize it, but let's go get some. <laughs> right, know, like, no. But did you yeah. talk to any of your family before the decision, or you just did it on your own? I didn't really. Um, I think I might have just said, look, I'm doing this, and I had this look in my eye, and my mom was like, they are not definitely weren't encouraging me, <laughs> but uh, but they, were, they weren't going to stop me either, or try, you know. So after you signed the papers and you came back and, you know, did you tell them, hey, it's it's done and I leave when? And what was their reaction? Um, they were not happy. But they I shouldn't say they weren't happy. They were they were scared because, they, you know, their son just joined the Marines in what just became a wartime Marine Corps. Sure. Um, a lot different than if I would have joined two days before. Um, so they knew all that that entailed. Um, but they were very, very supportive. All Everybody was. So. When you walked into the, the recruiting station, I mean, was this just more about you not having anything to do and wanting to do your part? Was there a sense of patriotism? Kind of, can you recall some of the thoughts and feelings that you were having? I mean, was there any hesitation when you put the pen to the paper before you signed? Not really. I, I 
I think it was partly those things and partly like looking back in past and being like, you should have done this a long time ago. This is really, this, this needs to get you in gear. Like it's time to be an adult now. It's time to stop, you know, drinking every night and making your tips at the bar and then going to spend them and not really having a purpose in your life. No, no responsibility or things like that. Like, so it's a lot of different things. So when you, you know, when we spoke to you before the podcast, you said you couldn't be bothered with all the hard work, you know, it was just kind of something that wasn't in your, in your glide path at that point in time. And, uh, you just realized that you signed up for a ton of hard work. Were you aware of that? Yes, I was. Okay. So what was your kind of thought process going in? I, it really, it kind of flicked the switch for me. Um, I knew that I had, this was the most important thing I was ever going to do. It's also the most difficult thing I was ever going to do. I'm not a big guy. I'm five, six on a good day. Um, but I knew that this is something that I always took with me was, this is not a job you want to mess up at. Sure. Because yeah. either you're going to get killed or the people you're responsible for or the guy next to you is going to get killed. So I told the recruiter on that day, I was like, look, give me six weeks. I'll do like a you know delayed enlistment program. I was like, give me six weeks. I need to get myself in some type of shape. Um, I started running. I wasn't in terrible shape because I never really had been in bad shape, but I wanted to start running and doing push-ups and all this stuff. I uh, had a couple of my buddies that were former Marines. I was like, what do I need to know to go to boot camp? Like it really like, I don't know. It just completely motivated me. Like I had to, it was totally focused after I signed that paper. Yeah. So you get to boot camp. <laughs> was it what you were told it was? Was there any things that you saw that were unexpected or anything like that? Yeah, it wasn't quite Full Metal Jacket. Um, <laughs> it's funny. It actually, was I got to boot camp November twelfth, two thousand one. So just a, was it yesterday? <laughs> it was like seventeen. I didn't realize that till wow. Day, yeah. Day. Hey, congratulations! Yeah. Happy anniversary. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> um, it's funny because you know that was the first time I ever been on an airplane. I flew from Baltimore to Charleston, and then they bust you to to Paris Island. And for some reason, they always make sure you get there at like three o'clock in the morning. Um, and you stand on those yellow footprints out front like it's a commercial, and they start yelling at you. And I'm like, all right, here we go. You know, and you make a five-second phone call, and, hey, Mom, I'm okay. I'm like, all right, get your hair cut. All your hair's gone. And then you get in this assembly line, and they give you a duffel bag and all your uniforms and your boots and your razors and everything you need. And then they sit there, and they talk to you for a good, I'd say, 30 to 40 hours. And they just won't let you go to sleep. And the reason they do that is when it's, when it's time for you to sleep, they say, all right, now you can sleep. And now you go to sleep and you're on their schedule. Makes so sense. You get six hours of sleep yeah. every day for the next 13 weeks, you know. Yeah. So it was it was definitely an eye-opener. I was, I mean, I was ready, but I wasn't ready. Like, I knew it was going to be the hardest thing ever, but I just didn't know what that meant. So when, when you look back and it was all said and done, what was the hardest thing about it? Uh, honestly, for me, I'm terrible in the water. So the swim fall part was really bad. <laughs> um, I'm the least amphibious Marine in history. <laughs> Probably a, a, a unimpressive distinction, to say the least. All right. right. So, you know, you and then you go to School of Infantry right after? Yeah, School of Infantry was right down in Camp, Camp Geiger, North Carolina, which is right adjacent to Camp Lejeune. And by the time that's all done, when do you actually get to your unit? Like time frame wise, um, month year. I think that's an that's another. I'm trying to remember. It's been so long. I think it's another seven or eight weeks. So I got to the fleet in the beginning of April 2002. 
Okay. So so you're basically talking about another uh, 11 months before Iraq kicks off, which is where your first deployment was. Um, Correct. What were you told prior going into your first deployment? And what were you thinking at that? I mean, you know, a lot of Marines that we talk to have that, as you said earlier, get some mentality. Was that all this was for you? It was just when you found out you were going to Iraq, you're like, yeah, you're going to go do it. going to go get some. Yeah, I, I shouldn't. I don't want to say it like that because it's not like I was just going in to blow up a bunch of stuff. Um, I just, I found out. I, I, people ask me, and I'm sorry, I'm stuttering. Um, people ask me later and, and, or when I'm back from leave and they're like, you know, why are you doing this? Like, why do you just want to go do this? And I'm like, look, I would rather people shoot at me over there than shoot at my friends over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, but I was, I was really lucky to go to a good unit. Um, I was with second battalion, eighth Marines, um, as part of second Marine division. Um, and I got just fantastic squad leader, uh, and, and team leader right off the bat. Um, and again, I, I just, I, I decided like, I, I need to learn every single thing I can from you. Like, I was like, teach me everything. Um, because that's, people ask me, what's the most important thing about that you have to do when you join the military? It's just to do your job correctly. <laughs> like learn as much as you can be a sponge. Like don't, because this is one of those jobs where if you mess up, people can get killed. So learn what you can be the best person that you can learn the job of the guy above you teach your job to the guy below you. So I was brought into a unit that had excellent leadership and really helped me grow as a young Marine. Were you prepared for that first deployment? Well, the Marines has just a a, a core wide bravado. So I think we're all ready to go and, and we train all the time and you never want to, you know, you know, we always want to be the tough guy. We want to be the first there. Um, but you're not really prepared until real bullets are flying. Yeah. Yeah. And part of the, the, you know, the background of that question is uh, as much as we all train for combat, it's the most unpredictable thing on the face of the earth. And from that standpoint, um, you know, sometimes preparation is just about um, being prepared for the unprepared, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so did you feel like when you got there, did you know why, what you were there? Did you care why you were there? Did you care what the mission was? Was there any of that? Yes. Well, it's funny is how the plan gets disseminated from the way, way higher up all the way down to the PFCs and Lance Corporal. So you really don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> you just know what's going on within 20 meters of yourself, pretty much. Right. Um, I was, uh, like I said, I, I got into a good unit. Some of the senior guys got out before we deployed to Iraq. Um, we did a couple training evolutions, in, one in Spain and one in um, California in Bridgeport, mountain warfare training. Um, so by the time we deployed to Iraq, I was a Lance Corbett. I was a, a team leader, first team leader in a rifle squad. Um, so I learned a lot from Mike's squad leader then. That was Corporal Ramos. He's a, He was, I don't want to say laid back, but he wasn't a screamer. Just kind of got his guys in place, and when he needed to scream, he would. And I always remembered that. You know, there's a time to scream, there's a time not to, but you just need to get everybody in place and make sure you're doing your job. You talked about the real bullets flying. Um, when that happens to you for the first time, you know, what do you remember about it? What did you do? Did it did it all go as planned? Does it not go as planned? Give me some of the information there. Well, there's a, a good line that says, the, the best plan doesn't survive first contact with the enemy. <laughs> um, 
the first time I actually had anything live fired at me was actually the night before we crossed the border. So we're talking March, 2003, I guess it was like March 19th or 20th or somewhere around there. Right. Um, and we were dug in just shy of the Iraqi border and we didn't have any armor on our vehicles at that point. We didn't have, uh, we had chemical mop suits, but they were green instead of desert. <laughs> we had one enough for one sappy plate in each Kevlar. So we had a, a, a armor plate in the front, but not in the back. So we, we were pretty much kind of bottom of the barrel as far as equipment, just because, you know, everybody in Camp Lejeune just left Camp Lejeune to go to, go to Iraq. So, um, so we're dug in near the border and, that's when all like the tomahawks start flying in and the MLRS start lighting off and scuds are flying the other way and Patriots are flying this, all these different kind of weapon systems are flying. So it's literally like a fireworks show that will really get you killed. <laughs> so that's when I was kind of like, oh, this might not work out. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, you're starting to get that thought, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah, yeah. Was it, it goes through your head. I mean, it, there's no go. It's not like there's any going back. So no, but I mean, w was there fear involved at that point? There is. I always just try to keep busy. Like that was my thing. Like, like you know, I'll keep busy enough to get get over being scared until it's time to not be scared anymore. Sure. And then it's too late to be scared. I guess if that makes sense. So you're part of the initial invasion of Iraq. Um, when you look back on that, I mean, obviously it was swift and fast, right? I mean, yeah. we got to Baghdad within a couple of days, maybe even less than that, a couple of hours, you know, in the grand scheme of things, 36, 48 hours, whatever it was. Um, and, you know, do you think that – was combat all it was cracked up to be from your standpoint? Oh, absolutely. Well, we we, we didn't get to Baghdad in 30 hours. We, we were right up the middle with uh, first regimental combat team and – and second Marine regiment. So we, we were in Nazaria, um, two days after the invasion. Sure. Um, so we actually, that we were in Nazaria in fairly significant contact for a good week and a half. Um, so that was pretty heavy duty. Um, and that's, you know, through the, through a lot of swampland, a lot of desert, uh, bridges over the Euphrates. Um, that's where we lost a lot of people, not my unit, thank God, but, um, one of the units attached to our regiment um, suffered some casualties um, from friendly fire from Air Force A-10s. Yeah, I've, uh, I've read about was, that. I've, I've read yeah. about the, what happened in Al Nasiriyah and, and uh, the friendly fire incidents. And, you know, I, I obviously, every, I, I, it's so easy to sit there and play armchair quarterback after the fact about what went wrong. And I'm not, yeah. I am not alleviating responsibility of the pilots who are in those planes dropping those bombs for not understanding what's going on. They, they bear a certain amount of responsibility, but sometimes, as you know, combat moves quicker than you can think and move. It just happens oh, that fast. And so from that standpoint, a lot of it's reactionary, and you do what you think is best given the information you have at that moment, and sometimes those results aren't always beneficial to everybody involved. I know that yeah. sounds very kind of, you know, canned and diplomatic and, you know, rehearsed or whatever you want to say, but that's just a fact of the matter. So, um you know, when you when you learned that after the fact that it was friendly fire, did it make you mad? It did, and actually, you know, it it took me a while to get over that. Um, Why? Because in the heat of the moment, you're like, "Well, what the f? Like, I can't believe this! Like, 
you're an A-10 pilot. You're supposed to be able to identify all kinds of armor vehicles. You're by a really slow plane. How come you couldn't tell that that was Marine vehicles? But you're right. That when you get out of it, and, and again, I'm, I'm seeing things 50 meters at a time because I don't have a – I just have a squad leader or a team did a radio. I can't talk to anybody that's not in my squad. So I, have, I don't know what's actually happening. That, that happened about uh, maybe a half mile from me, maybe a little bit more. So I didn't physically see it. We just heard it, you know, the Lance Corporal hotline. But um, later on down the road, like, you realize, like, well, there was a lot of mitigating factors. Like, maybe, well, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus here. Lots of things happened. No, like, I'm, had, I'm not asking right? you to. I just kind of want yeah. your perspective on it. Um, I realized that, like, we had, at that point, we actually had friendly units moving south. We had friendly units moving, moving north and moving east. So it's an extremely fluid situation also in an urban environment. So it's, it's, we didn't like it at all. Um, but again, it's, these things happen and it's the worst possible thing to say, but that's, the old adage is true. I mean, listen, the the casualties of war, the casualties of war, the old, you know, if you're going to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs kind of deal. Um, and again, that's callous and, and it sounds very matter of fact, but there is a, a large amount of truth to it. But the, the other point uh, of all this is simply that, you know, combat in and of itself is unforgiving for everybody, right? Like there, there's nothing no, about it that, that is something that you can um, try to predict or figure out. You just do the best of what you have of the information that happens. And um, to, to judge that from a position of never having been there or to judge that from a position of putting non-combat rules into combat situations is a very slippery slope to stand on. Um, and, and that I've always had a problem with. You know, It's easy for people in Washington to judge what has gone on with the benefit of hindsight and calm and everything else. But you know, it, it's the human element of combat is, is something that you can't ever account for. Um, and how people are going to react in certain spots in certain situations. So uh, it, it, it all goes into it. It's, yeah. a, it's always a very interesting conversation. All right, so... And as, all the way down to minute by minute. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. So that, that first deployment finishes. Um, you know, you mentioned that they, there were some casualties taken. When you realize that one of your own is gone... Um, do you feel that there was, what's the sense, is it, was it worth it? Was it? Was there a sense of you have to, you know, go on for them kind of deal? Where did you sit on that whole thing about losing one of your own? Well, um, that's tough. I remember, now I will say, they weren't one of mine, um, but they were, it, I was talking earlier to my wife about what part of one of my unit is. Uh, if it's one of my fire team, my squad, my platoon, all the way up to my battalion. Like, these were guys that were attached to our regiment. Um, I turned out later that I I did know one of them, um, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, but on the way back um, on the ship, we had the ceremony, you know, with the boots and the rifles and the yeah. helmet. And it's just not a – it's just not a great feeling. It just kind of leaves you hollow. Um, but at that time – this is June of 2003, you know, Baghdad's fallen. I'm like, yeah, we won the war. This is over. Like, so we don't have to worry about this anymore. Uh, mission accomplished. Remember 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Mission accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. I think I have that t-shirt somewhere. <laughs> um, any, any thoughts about wanting to, to quit after, you know, you lose some of your buddies? No, not at all. 
Second deployment comes up, you're headed to Afghanistan. Um, totally different environment. You know, and while I, it just my, my brain triggered back to when you talk about totally different environment and you talk about Iraq and, and uh, urban combat, you know, w- for years we had always trained for jungle warfare, desert warfare, you know, open land warfare. We never, prior to the Iraq invasion, did a ton. The special ops guys have, yes. But General Marines, General Army, never really trained for an urban environment. And it is a totally different set of circumstances that you're operating on. So Yeah, it it really, really is. Yeah, Yeah. I meant to throw that in before. I apologize. I just kind of, you know, but uh, anyway, so I digress. We go back to Afghanistan, which, again, a totally different environment from Iraq, because now you're fighting in mountains, for crying out loud. Um, But you get there in the winter, I think it was 03 of 04, um, what was the mission there? What were you supposed to do? Well, we got there. We got home from Iraq, I think July 1st um, of 03, and we were on a plane, and we landed in Afghanistan on Thanksgiving Day 2003. So we did not have a lot of, lot of downtime uh, no. <laughs> back at home. <laughs> um, got home, went home for two weeks of leave. Basically, went back to Camp Lejeune and packed. <laughs> so, um, as we say, business was booming back then. No pun intended. Um so we got to, uh, got to Afghanistan on Thanksgiving. Um, we were assigned to like the greatest acronym ever, Siege of Soda, combined, combined Joint Special Operations Task Force. Uh, I was also assigned in 05 to 06 to CJ Soda, Combined Joint Special Operations right? Task Force. Ours was, hash, uh, ours was uh, Dash AP, Arabian Peninsula, though. So oh, C- well, CJ Soda uh, is... I had one of those. <laughs> yeah, it might have been AF or whatever it was, but uh, CJ Soda, a very large... Uh, Organ- well, let me rephrase that. Not a very large organization, but a very expanse organization, if you will. But go ahead. Right. Okay. Right. Um, so we had, we were in a, most Marine deployments are six to seven months. Um, I guess I know Army is a lot, lot longer, um, but we kind of go out shorter, but we go out more. At least it was back then. Um, so we got there Thanksgiving. Basically, I remember that deployment as being three two month deployments. Um, our first two-month deployment, we went out to um, Azadabad. Um, we flew into Bagram Air Base, which is like the larger air base yep. in uh, central central Afghanistan. Um, and uh, Echo Company was assigned to Azadabad, which is uh, a mission support site um, in northeast Afghanistan in the Konar province, very close to the Pakistani border, um, which is where the big bad guy was supposed to be. Um and uh, I don't know if you ever see the movie Lone Survivor. This, sure. That's the same area. Yeah. Um, we were there, I think, about 18 months before those events took place. But it was that same uh, same little support site. Um, Michael Toon actually got chopped to an ODA team um, out in an even smaller little camp in, in Nangalam, was what it was called, um, which was the best two months of my entire enlistment <laughs> because we had a, a platoon of 27 Marines attached to a, a OD 18, which is a green beret 18 um, on this little base with some Afghan militia. And we just did patrols, some raids, some meet and greets with village elders, grab some, uh, I don't know, EPWs or bad guys. Hi, bad guys. I don't know. They they change the acronym every five years. Yeah, or, or, or HVTs, high value targets, whatever you want to call HVTs, them. HVTs. That's what that's what it is now, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, but we 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 got to go out with those guys, and I don't want to say do what we wanted, but 
kind of not as many restrictions as we would have just being on in the big the yes. big fight, so yes. to speak. Um, so just it was it was good to get out. They were out in the mountains. Um, just that was a good time. You know, and I a hundred percent can relate. In my first deployment was fifteen months in CJ Soto with the with Army Special Forces, and it literally was the best experience of my entire nineteen plus years in the military. I wouldn't trade it for yeah. anything. Uh, I got very lucky. I, I didn't. There was no reason I got that assignment other than just time and place and needs of the Army, if you will. But as you said. I, I did a lot of things on that deployment that I had no business doing, being on raids and interrogations and things of that nature and some other things that we don't always talk about. But beyond that, uh, that environment is very conducive to, um, you know, like you said, it's just they operate under their own set of circumstances based off of the needs of the mission and what they have to do. And sometimes that's a little bit of a reprieve from what we're so used to as far as structure and discipline and order and the rules and the, and the manuals and everything that we follow and all that stuff. Right. But when you get into that different environment, it's almost like you just do what needs to be done. Uh, you're not doing anything illegal, immoral, or unethical or anything that's going to put anybody in danger. You're just thinking outside the box, so to speak, to put it in plain terms. Oh, absolutely. And there's, I mean, there's a reason for all those rules for the big side. You can't just do it all the time, but, but yeah, it was, it was nice to be on their side a little bit. We also did some, some med caps, um, where we would set up mobile field hospitals. Uh, my buddy Jeff was in the, our Navy corpsman and, you know, we would treat Afghan civilian population, um, for any of their medical needs and burns and things like that. So it was, it was pretty fulfilling. All right, and so the third two-month deployment? Well, that was the kind of the first two months. The, uh, the, the middle two months was awful. It was guarding towers. Um, we, were, we were on guard tower duty at Bagram Air Base for two months. Oh, that sucks. It was like eight hours on, eight hours off in a guard tower for two months. <laughs> I would not wish that on my worst enemy. <laughs> uh, that's true. I mean, there's, so there's nothing. For people who aren't military listening, there's a lot of boring jobs overseas, trust me. There's a lot of boring jobs overseas. <laughs> so uh, it's not all it's cracked up to be. And I, I don't say that as a pejorative, but everybody who's put on a uniform and has been there knows that somebody has to stand in front of the chow hall, right? Like somebody has to stand there and just make yeah. sure nobody who's not supposed to be in there, you know, goes in there or that everybody clears their weapon or whatever. Um, somebody has to stand gate guard all day long. It's not exciting, but yeah. somebody has to be there. I, it's like working in a toll I got booth. really lucky. Yeah, I, I got really lucky most of my time in the Marine Corps did not having to do stuff like that. I was usually in a more mobile unit, but, or well, in more mobile job, but this was uh, two months where I got stuck in the tower. <laughs> and then the, the third um, part of it? The third part of it was, sounds worse, but it's actually better. We were QRF for the country. So we stayed in a squad bay, or at quicker action force. Um, we stayed in a squad bay on the, on the runway at Bagram, um, and we had to be able to get on helicopters and fly anywhere in the country within like two hours. So we couldn't really leave to go anywhere except for like the chow hall and the gym. Um, the best part about that is it's an air force base. So the chow hall, yeah, like you go. An out, it's like an outback steakhouse, which doesn't sound like much, but you remember you're in Afghanistan. So that's really, really good. <laughs> um, and we just trained and wrote these mission profiles and, um, Worked out, played basketball, went to the chow hall, talked to a lot of the Army guys and, like, the Apache pilots and their commitment. Like, you should come over to the Army to fly Apaches. I'm like, yes, I'm going to do that. You know, that, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
one night I will remember we were walking to the chow hall and um, this had to be probably towards the end of the deployment. It had to be out of February, March, April, somewhere in that in the uh, 04. And there was a uh, honor guard um, walking down the runway. And my, I was with my buddy, Jeff and uh, Noah and I, and you know, we stopped and rendered honors and I'm like, Oh man. And it turned out it was Pat Tillman. Oh, wow. Um, that was his flight home. Yeah, it was April 2004. Um, yeah, that's a, yeah, exactly, April 2004, um, which is tough. I mean, I I'd always loved him as a player and just admired what he did. Because um, he, I mean, he quit playing football after 9/11 and joined the Rangers. I mean, that was just amazing. Um, yeah, so that was that was tough. That was very tough. How did that news reverberate through the ranks? Um. Well, see, back then, there still wasn't a lot. There was, like, two TVs on base, and none where we were. Um, but word of so mouth we, didn't the, the didn't route, push that along quickly? Word of mouth gets around. Yeah, it did get around. But as far as the whole friendly fire thing, nobody knew anything about that. Oh, yeah, I wasn't even talking I about think, that. I was I was just more talking about the news of Pat being killed in action, uh, regardless oh, of, yeah. of how. I just, how did that disseminate among the ranks? How quickly did it happen? It It, it was quick. It was, we call it the Lance Corporal Hotline. If one of them knows about it, they, everybody knows within a good two hours. What so, was people's reaction? Do you remember to some of the things that people said or what happened? Or It was really more, more like a, just a you know, head down, shake of the head. Like nothing really elaborate. Um, yeah, not, nothing really emotional responses. I, I mean, I took it pretty hard because I, I just, just admired what he did. I Sometimes I kind of romanticize military service more than I should, but um, sometimes it deserves to be, you know? Well, look, I, I don't think that in anything you said, you're romanticizing in it, but, but there is a certain, amount of, um, a, a certain amount of romance to it from the standpoint of, you know, it, it's a passion, it's a love, um, it, it's a desire to do something for other than yourself, and typically, you know, that's what romance is all about. You're giving to someone else, in this case for... <laughs> You know, you're giving your, your your life and your service to your country. So there there is a there is a touch of that. I don't think you're wrong for for echoing that sentiment, or you're off base with it at all. I just, you know, uh, it kind of just depends on who describes it and how they do. Um, right. So after that second deployment, um, any point in time you, you you're like, hey, I'm still in this. I'm still loving what I'm doing. Still want to be a marine. Yeah, you know, the only thing that, that used to get me was uh, red tape and paperwork and rules of engagement and. They're all in place for a reason. They're safeguards, and I completely understand that. But when, you know, I got to, I remember being, trying to take a patrol out of Bagram or Afghanistan, and they're like, wait, you need three more forms of a patrol order. We need a patrol here. We need this. We need to form this. And I'm like, I'm going on a two mile security patrol where you'll be able to see me the entire time. Why do I have to fill out eight different pieces of paperwork? Just things like that. Um, and just, I don't know, just little things. It just seemed like there was a disconnect. You know, we, we talk about kind of the, um, you know, the, the rules of engagement a lot in combat here on the podcast and some for good, some for bad and some for different reasons. But, you know, the concept of, uh, you know, firing your weapon is, is something we do harp on often. And you reflect back on those experiences for you. How much do you feel like you've changed because you've had to use your weapon in combat? I think I've changed a lot. Well, I think it just changes you polarly. I mean, it's 
that's not a word. Um, there's no feeling like, no feeling in the world like pointing your weapon at another human being and pulling the trigger. Yes, that is correct. I, I, I absolutely cannot even describe it. I mean, and it's, it's part guilt, it's part fear, it's part rage, it's part joy. I, I, it's just, but at the, in the back of your head, it's like, that guy's trying to kill me, or the guy next to me, so that's, that's not allowed to happen. So I need to stop that from happening, I guess. No, it's very so. well said. I mean, I, you know, there's, there, again, we, we say it a lot, that you, once you pull that trigger, you're never the same person. Um, and, yeah, and how never. you how you handle that and how you respond to that is different for everybody. Um, some people are very matter of fact about it. Some people, you know, can wax poetically about it, and some people just, uh, you know, boil it down to basics. It's either them or me, and, and all those things right. play into it. You know, um, you know, I'm surprised you said in the back of your mind it's one of those things where either he's going to kill me or my buddy. That was at the front of my mind. I, that didn't that part didn't escape me until after the fact. I was one of those who didn't get caught in the moment. Just after the fact, yeah. I got caught in the moment. You know, it's like, damn, <laughs> things are different now. All right, so you do your, right. you, you do two more deployments. Kind of get me through those and tell me what they're about for you. All right, so uh, third deployment, um, we did it. Was called a Marine Expeditionary Unit. Um, so we put a battalion of Marines on three ships, um, and they usually sail in the Mediterranean and stop and do training. Um, now, after nine eleven, all of the Mews had just gone straight to Iraq deployed them in part of the land force so we thought that's what we were going to do um well this time unbeknownst to us we get on the ship and they're like no this is going to be a regular med float so we did training with um israelis um saudi arabians or saudis um who else uh jordanians things like that we were in kuwait for about two months so during the summer of 2005 that sounds like and a real hoot. Point, yeah. Kuwait in the summer. Um, yeah, that sounds like a real hoot. Kuwait in the summer. It's, it's beautiful. It's like Hawaii, but with nothing that Hawaii has. It's all, all beach, um, no ocean. Right. Uh, and I remember that's when 05, I think Ramadi was pretty hot. Yes. Um, or maybe it was Fallujah. But you were up there. It was both. Then, yeah, right? 05 to 06, I was there. It was both. Yeah. Um, and right around this training in Kuwait, we were still thinking we were going into Iraq. And my staff charger pulls me aside, um, and I'm a sergeant at this point. And, and he goes, so we're not, we're not going up. We're just going to go back on the boat after like a, a month and go to Jordan. And I'm like, okay, um, I'd like to transfer. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I, need, I would like to transfer to, uh, I don't know if it was 3-6 or one of the Marine units that was, that was in Ambar at the time. And he's looking at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, look, I'm not a... I'm not bloodthirsty here. Like, I just want to go and do the job so that everybody gets to go home. And I think that I'm probably better as a squad leader with my experience than they might have a third squad leader corporal up there that's never been deployed. Like, let me help. Let me go help. Let me go do this. And I don't think I've ever actually told anybody that I asked that. Um, well, except him. <laughs> but, <laughs> but people, uh, I mean, I'm sure people think I'm crazy for saying that, but no, I it's felt it's, like it, it, I, I could do more good. Yeah, know? it's it's not crazy at all, Dave. I mean, it's one of those things where, um, you know, the line is said in Saving Private Ryan by uh, by Barry Pepper when uh, you know the guy says, "The Lord made me a fine instrument of warfare," 
you know, and, and the Marines have made you a fine instrument of warfare. And, and to take that instrument and not apply it correctly is kind of a waste. I mean, yes, there, there are yeah. other jobs that need to be done. There are other, you know, uh, missions that have to be taken care of that aren't combat oriented. And that there's nothing wrong with them. But there's also on the counter, there's nothing wrong with you wanting to go, listen, uh, this is what I'm good at. This is where I can help. Let me go help. I, I, that's you know, I, I think a lot of Marines and a lot of Army guys, soldiers or whatever, sailors would express the same sentiment. Yeah. So did you get your request? Nope. Denied. <laughs> <laughs> so it was back to the ship for you then? Back to the ship. Um, we actually yeah, sailed back out of the Persian Gulf. We're on our way home. We stopped and did what's called beer on the pier um, in Jordan. Um, there's like a resort city like a harbor city in Jordan called Aqaba. So they pulled the ships up to the pier and they ordered like 300 cases of beer and everybody got to hang out on the pier. Um, you know, it's like a dock, like a port dock, not a pier. Um, and just have beer, but you couldn't leave. You couldn't go into the city or anything. Um, and then so everybody gets drunk, gets back on the ship. The next day, somebody fires a rocket at the ship. And it hits the warehouse on the dock, like just a one of those poorly aimed, you know, old Russian artillery rockets. They shoot it at the ship, hits a hits the uh, warehouse next next to the ship. Um, so the ship has to get out of get out of town. Um, and we actually had Marines training out in Jordan with the Jordanian Army that were like 50, 60 miles away. And I'm like, where are we going? They're like, well, they're shooting rockets. Uh, Got to get the ship out of port. I'm like, okay. What about the 200 Marines that are on the beach? <laughs> um, but they ended up figuring it out and going back and getting them. But I was not very happy about that. So. How quickly can a ship get out of port? Like, So if it lands and it blows up, just out of curiosity, how quickly does does it take to ship? I mean, you have to get everybody back on it, obviously, first. But how quickly can they get out of there? It, it's not that quick. I mean, well, I shouldn't say it's not that quick. For a ship that big, I mean, the Ashland and the Kearsarge are, I think the action's like 900 feet long and the Kearsarge is like 1,000 feet long. That's why I'm asking. Takes, I mean, at least an hour. Because uh, if, like, if you've ever been on a cruise ship, board. right? If you've ever been yeah. on a cruise ship, it's not like you can pop that thing in reverse and it just speeds right out. It's not a motorboat. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was a little tense, tense moments for the crew, but I was just mad. But they did good. They did. I mean, I guess that's what they had to do. So. All right. And then finally, the last deployment for you. Uh, back to Iraq it is. Well, actually, uh, actually, when I got back from the third deployment, I EAS, I got out um, in November of 2005, and then I was involuntarily recalled to active duty. Oh, really? Um, yeah, in 2008. Were you upset about that or no? I wasn't, um, because I, I was so on the fence um, about getting out or staying in. Um, in 2005. So when I got So what'd you have? Like about a two and a half year break in service? I did. Two and a half years. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they called me back. We had to go out to uh, Kansas City to like the processing center to make sure we were still um, medically fit and everything to get to be reactivated. Then um, I was back down to good old Camp Lejeune. Um, this time I was with uh, 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines. Uh, and we deployed to Ramadi in 2008. Let me ask you real quick. Let me put you on pause. When you got out, I, I assume your parents were, were happy with the decision, were relieved, you know, relieved that it was over for you? 
Well, the one thing you got to remember is I was a lot older than the normal age to join. Sure. So by the time I got out, I was 29. Now, that's not an old man by any stretch, but they, they, they were supportive, and they every single day they were. Um, very worried, I'm sure. My dad actually tried to join the Marines at age 54 um, after my during my first tour. When he heard we were going to Iraq, he went down to the recruiting office and tried to join the Marines at age 54. Uh, they told him no. Obviously, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah. All right, but um, so. And my mom used to uh, not watch the news until my aunt told her she could. Oh, wow. Yeah. We, our, our, our embedded reporter was from the Today Show. It was Carrie Sanders from the Today Show. So she would watch the, watch the Today Show and call my mom and say, Dave doesn't want you to watch the news today. <laughs> so. That's interesting. Um, yeah. You know, it's it, you just draw I never actually asked my mother what she did while I was gone. I've never, I, I wonder how many people have asked their parents that question, you know? See, that's what I thought about more than how scared I was, was, Oh my God, my mom was watching this on the news. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And, but, and it's, I have that same similar sentiment from the standpoint of, you know, whatever the social media world is what it is. And people say a lot of dumb, mean things on, per- I, I don't care what you say about me per se. Um, but the only thing that bothers me is if people question my service or anything that I've done or anything like that, I get upset because of what my family had to go through. Not because I think yeah. like I, I really care that you think that I'm a pog or, you know, in, in the rear with the gear, whatever. I don't care about any of that. Like you could say whatever you want. <laughs> but the, the fact is that, you know, there were many, I, I, again, I've never asked, but I assume there were many sleepless nights with my mom and my brother and my dad and my entire family, you know, and, and, for that, that 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 I get very protective over because I do too, and I feel guilty about it. That's, I mean, I really did. Really? Yeah. Why guilty? Yeah, I, I just felt I didn't want to. I didn't want them to worry about, me. and I, I knew they would. You know, the only the only I, mean, I, I guess I felt a little guilty. Yeah. No, the, I mean, the only solace I had is that my stepfather was in Vietnam, and I knew that he could keep my kind of my mother's emotions at bay. You know, yeah. like he could kind of explain to her and, and and let her know that, you know, hey, this is what goes on. And this is how, now granted Vietnam and, and Iraq and Afghanistan are entirely different, you know, combat, you know, rounds of combat. But beyond that, right. I, I, I just always felt and assumed that he had given her the, you know, uh, the, 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 the words that she needed to, to, to sleep as good as you can at night. Um, yeah. All right. So when, when you when you get recalled, when you tell your family, what did they say? They, I mean, it's kind of like, oh, here we go again. I, I think they knew that I never really, I don't want to say I never really got out, but I always was very proud of my service and, and kind of second-guessed getting out because I really could have made a career out of it. I think I, I, think I could have. Um, but they, they knew that I, when they saw the look in my eye, they're like, oh, man, you're going back in and you're happy about it. And I'm like, I kind of am, you know, and I kind of am. Like, but it wasn't the same. Why? Things well, a lot of things change. Um, remember the red tape I talked about? Sure. Yeah. In two thousand five. Yeah, oh, yeah. In two thousand eight. Oh my! Thousand gosh. times worse. Yes. It was awful. Um, I had to learn how to collate. Ridiculous, just to go on patrol. But um, yeah, it's and the unit I went back to was uh, recently just reactivated um, in in two thousand eight. Um, it had been deactivated after Vietnam and then reactivated, and they brought in a lot of Marines from a bunch of different units, um, whether it be embassy duty or anti-terrorism battalion or um, recruiting, 
things like that, and then put a bunch of involuntarily recalled Marines in there and decided that this was going to be like some type of well-oiled machine, and it wasn't. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, it was a good unit. It really was, but it wasn't anywhere near as good as 2.8 when I was in 2.8. Um, but luckily, we found out when we got to Ramadi that Ramadi wasn't Ramadi anymore. It was pretty tame in 2008. Yeah. All of Anbar was, actually. So... So when you when you got in for that enlistment, did they tell you? I mean, was it just for that deployment? Was it for a year? What did they tell you? It was for one year, um, and they uh, they were trying to recall NCOs with combat experience, and um, mainly in the MOSs of infantry, military, police, and I believe intelligence, um, because that was when they, we did the surge, um, and also that was when they started demilitarizing bases. Actually, it wasn't the surge. Because we were demilitarizing bases in 2008 and 2009. Because we shut down Camp Fallujah. Yeah. And a couple other little bases. And I think later after that, not soon after we left in May of 2009, they, they shut down Camp Ramadi, I believe. But it was just basically going on patrols with Iraqi security forces. And, you know, we'd lead one patrol, they'd lead one, we'd lead one, they'd lead one. Um, and then looking for hidden arms caches and insurgents. Interesting. All right, so why did ultimately you decide to get out? Why did you not re-enlist? Well, a lot of it was because of what we've been talking about, the, that all the paperwork and red tape. And and I think a lot of it was once I was going to pick up Staff Sergeant, I knew I wasn't going to be able to be in a squad. I'd be further and further away from where I thought I should be. Right. Um, and I just, that would have kind of broke my heart. Yeah, I don't... I guess if I would have stayed in for a career, I'd eventually would have happened anyway, but I just didn't think it was for me. And I could have been wrong. I mean, it, it, it literally was a toss-up. It was. Do you, When you look back on it, do you think that, you know, the Marines was everything you wanted it to be from the day you signed in? I don't know if I look at it like that. I look at it like every past job you had, you remember all the good stuff, you forget about all the crappy stuff. So I, I remember my guys, and I remember the times we were joking around about not having a shower for 70 days. And the times we got to go on patrol with SF and on along the Afghani border. And um, just mainly my guys. I mean, that's what I miss. Um, and I don't really remember the bad stuff, like the boring parts, like standing tower guard or going on a, a mountain rock hike for 20 miles and, and things like that. So you always remember, you always miss the good stuff. When you look back at your Marine career, do you wish you had enlisted earlier? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. I never even thought about that, actually. Because if I would have enlisted, geez, I'd be... I'd probably be a sergeant major right now, Mark. Yeah, I mean, that's well, that, that was kind a, of where I'd I was going. Five years right now. Do you think you would have been more apt to have made a career out of it had you not had a little bit of life experience, had you not had a little bit of things that you had done, uh, you know, had you not had the break and serve, you know, all those things would have played into it. You don't know how it would have played out, but kind of that was my, my thought process. Do you think you'd still be in 20 years later? I actually do. And, I, and the reason is um, I met – a Marine that was a higher rank than me, but we were the same age. Um, 
but he had gotten in, like you said, right out of high school. And I met him when I was twenty five or I was twenty five or twenty six, and he was twenty five or twenty six. But he had nine years in, and I had two years in. And he outranked me, and he was well spoken and everything. But I could tell, like, like you just tell we were different. Like we're the same age, but we're different life experiences. Like, I, it's hard to explain. And I feel like if I would have went right out of high school or shortly thereafter, yeah, I would have been Marine forever. I'd have been Gunny Highway. Well, listen, that's a admirable path to choose, to say the least. But uh, you move on from the military um, and continue on with your. When you got back, did you know what you wanted to do? Did you kind of just have a plan, or are you just letting it come to you? Well, I, I'd spent so much time in the restaurant business that I just kind of went back to that. Um, right. It's always a safe gig. Um, it's good money. Um, but not a lot of upward mobility, I guess. Sure, yeah. Um, so I got back into that. No complaints. I'm actually uh, working at a contractor right now, managing, so feeling good. Uh, the other thing that we mentioned uh, is that you have just been uh, selected to be part of Shootout for Soldiers, an event that originated in Maryland by a young high school student who actually I interviewed years ago. Uh, his name is Tyler right? Steinhardt, and uh, not only has it branched into you know just a, a major event every single Memorial Day weekend, uh, but they have other chapters in other cities, but it all did originate uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, in the area where you grew up and, uh, you know, in, in the Baltimore, you know, Annapolis area where lacrosse is obviously huge. But uh, it is a 24 hour continuous lacrosse game, all played by volunteers, and they raise money um, for veterans organizations uh, across, you know, they raise money and donate, it, I should say, to uh, to veterans and veterans organizations. But I'll let you talk more about it and, and what it is and and let people know where they can help out. Yeah, it's uh, just it's a fantastic event. Like you said, Tyler and uh, just a great group of young people came up with this idea in high school. Yeah, high school kids, I think it's amazing. Seven years ago. Um, and to date, we raised over $3 million. Um, and our current uh, partners are uh, Team RWB, um, the Rangers Lead the Way Fund, uh, Semper Fi Foundation, or, I'm sorry, Semper Fi Fund, and the Gary Sinise Foundation. Um, and they really help out with, you know, veterans, wounded veterans and their families. Um, and like you said, it's a 24-hour lacrosse game. Um, it's in cities like Atlanta, Seattle, Long Island, Baltimore, D.C., Philly, uh, Denver, L.A. Um, it's just really grown. It's just just a great event. Um, 92% of each dollar gets, the, gets donated as well. Um, what we're actually looking to... Um, to do is get some more veteran participation in it. I've played in the, in the, uh, in the event the last five years. It's, um, the first game in each event is veterans only. Um, and believe me, it's, it's, it's pure comedy because a lot of us haven't played in quite some time, but we're out there, we're out there trying to play lacrosse and, uh, it's usually like four to three after an hour, but, um, it's great. And even if you have no experience, you can come out there and play, donate, volunteer, um, and yeah, shootoutforsoldiers.com is the website. Give some more, uh, some more info, but that'll be out uh, summer of 2019. Will be uh, will be next shootout. Yeah, it really is. I, I, again, I, I've been a part of supporting the event for several years now, both in Baltimore when I worked there, uh, and down here in Atlanta now, where I live and reside. And so uh, I, I can't think of a, a better organization. The fact that it was started by high school kids always amazed me, and they've gained so much traction for it. Uh, nationwide to put this thing on is absolutely amazing and certainly 
Uh, Dave, thank you for being part of that that organization. Obviously, thank you for your service and everything that you've done. And uh, we certainly appreciate hearing your story. It's unique. It's it's individual. And um, you know everything that you went through um, certainly reminds us all why we put on a uniform and, and and the reasons why we do it. So we certainly thank you for being here, Dave Burton. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Mark, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.